The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Cap Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen, uh, joined as always by my partner in crime, uh, Tim Foster. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm well, thanks, Rich. Great. Well, it's... Uh, it, it, I was going to say it's budget time, but it feels like it's always budget time in California until we get to way late in the year. But uh, we actually have budget news. We have a budget deal uh, this week. So uh, we've got a guest on who's going to help us suss out some of what that budget entails. Uh, we'll do the winners and losers aspect of it all. Of course, uh, somebody we've had on the show before to talk about this, Chris Haney, uh, Executive Director of the California Budget and Policy Center. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. It's good to have a budget deal in place. Great, and uh, I, I sounded a little bit like Joey from Friends there. I, I, I'm not sure what that was all about when I said, how are you doing? I didn't mean that. <laughs> anyway, well, let's talk about the budget. Um, we and, and, you know, the full caveat of there's a deal, but there these things tend to change and they will continue to change with trailer bill, bills and more uh, negotiations as we go forward. But uh here, as we are recording this, we have a deal. We have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen, at least at this point. Uh, Chris, give us your assessment, I guess, of what we have so far and, you know, maybe what you think of all this. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's important to, to understand that state leaders are facing a deficit this year for the first time in, a, in over a decade. Uh, so, you know, we've gone from surplus budgeting to deficit budgeting in a very short period of time, and a lot of state leaders haven't been through that. There's only a, a handful left who were here during the Great Recession, and remember those cuts that had to be made in 2010 and 2011 during those lean years. So, you know, they're facing a deficit for the first time, and after a decade of, I think, them feeling and many advocates feeling like a lot of progress was made uh, in terms of new investments and shoring up things that had to be cut in earlier years, they did a good job of resolving the deficit and protecting some of those earlier investments. Uh, you know, it still remains to be seen like, okay, do, do they have another deficit and is it larger next year? Um, and so, you know, maybe things get a little leaner and a little harder, but but this year they they seemed to have the room to be able to adjust to resolve the deficit, balance the budget, and protect some earlier investments, uh, which were the goals, you know, that they said they had when they came into the year, knowing that the, the revenue picture just wasn't as good. Well, and we know a big part of what got the plan through was the governor dropped, uh, I guess, his proposal, his proposal to fast track uh, the Delta water tunnel. But but that doesn't mean all of his CEQA reform things are dead, correct? It doesn't mean that, although it does, they're not all resolved, right? So you were saying there are trailer bill issues to figure out. There's still there are still aspects of this where the details are not sorted out, um, and so some of what the governor want, wanted may still find its way into some of those details. There's also still a separate but parallel policy process that runs through August and early September, you know, where some of this could happen via policy bills, not via the budget. Um, so we'll see, right? Um, it's also really important to remember that like every year there are these other details to be sorted out or and there are these, there are these minor revisions or relatively minor revisions that happen in August to the budget deal. 
there may be more of that this year because most of us haven't filed our taxes, which we usually do by April 15th, but the federal government and the state government have allowed us all leeway to submit in October instead, which means the state doesn't have as good of an idea as what the revenue picture looks like, and they may have to make more significant revisions than normal if that revenue picture is off in some significant way from what they think they know now. Well, you know, we're a, we're a zero-sum game kind of society. So who are some of our big winners here and who are some of our, our big losers? I, I hate to frame it that way, right? But, <laughs> but that is how, like I say, we tend to be a zero-sum society. So just looking at it on the surface level, we know there were some very disappointed people uh, in what lawmakers came up with and others that were pretty happy with what happened. Uh, let's lay out a few of those. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I mean, let's go, let's do the good news stuff first. You know, folks who I think who, who are, you know, contingents of advocates who are feeling pretty good today or this week, the, the advocates for low-income communities and, and you know, people who struggle to make ends meet in our state, I think are mostly pretty happy because a lot of investments in safety net programs and cash assistance programs that happened in recent years were protected in the budget. And oftentimes those are the areas where when we face a deficit, they're the first places that get cut. Um, and so, to, you know, the fact that those were protected, um, I think those communities are feeling pretty good for, you know, for a deficit year. Uh, in the healthcare world, uh, there's um, the continued expansion of Medi-Cal so that all Californians who are undocumented can actually access health insurance. There uh, were some other improvements uh, in the healthcare arena that will allow some subsidizing of the co-pays that people pay in the covered California exchange, and those weren't in the January and the May proposals. Um, so there's, you know, I think the healthcare community uh, is feeling pretty good about what's in the budget. Um, you know, there was a big fight between May and and this enacted agreement around uh, trying to make sure there was more funding for transit. Um, and the legislature was really pushing hard against the governor who hadn't put a lot of money in to help shore up the, you know, a lot of the shortfalls that transit agencies are feeling because of the pandemic and ridership being down. And they kind of met halfway. You know, they didn't get everything they wanted, but I think the transit folks are feeling like, well, they got some temporary help and they'll have to keep having that fight going forward. Um, so, you know, I think there are a number of folks who feel pretty good about it. Um, you know, on the losers is a hard word here, you know, like the, the budget did a pretty good job of trying to meet people somewhere along the way, but um, folks who didn't get what they wanted, um, you know, there's ongoing long-term crisis level problems and housing and homelessness in the state, you know, housing from a sense of like cost of living, homelessness from the sense of, you know, this crisis that many of the biggest, bigger cities are experiencing. And while there was one-time funding in both of those pots that's been the case for the last few years, the folks who are advocating for more to happen in those spaces want ongoing funding, and there's still not significant ongoing funding streams that are there. So the big city mayors, for instance, have made a big push to get $3 billion in funding for homelessness and to have some of that funding be ongoing. And instead, what they're getting is a billion-dollar one-time funding to help with the problem. So they're not super thrilled about what they're, what they're, you know, what's in the budget. Um, otherwise, I think the, 
you know, the primary way that state leaders resolved the $30 billion shortfall was to pull back on one-time commitments they'd made in earlier years in the climate and infrastructure spaces. So for instance, like last year, in last in last year's enacted budget, they kind of added everything they'd done up over a couple of years and said, hey, we spent, we're spending $54 billion over the next five or six years on climate change programs. Well, they're now pulled that back by five or six or seven billion dollars. I'm not sure exactly how much in total. And that's one of the ways they solve this budget, you know, deficit problem. And so the climate change folks aren't super thrilled. And on the other hand, there's still a pretty large pot of money that's going to be spent over five or six years. But, you know, they're, they're not happy about, for instance, like reduced commitments to transitions to zero emission vehicles, which we know is going to be necessary, you know, over the long term. And the state has put requirements that we move completely away from traditional engine, you know, vehicles. So that that feels like a disconnect. Uh, and so those folks aren't super happy. I'm curious, has current Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon, and by the time all of you hear this, he'll be former uh, Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon. He called it He's not going to die or anything. I just mean he's he's going to be handing off the gavel to Robert Revis, I think, on Friday. Um, but he called, uh, Rendon called this a budget for the future. What did he mean by that? Yeah, so there's still, you know, I think what he means is even, even with the reductions in these one-time commitments in climate change and infrastructure, there's still a lot of what they agreed to in prior years that's going to carry forward. In terms of investments in those spaces, and 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 the you know what they did was they took the surpluses for the last two years and they put a lot of that money into infrastructure and climate change, and they did that on a one-time basis and rolled it you know kind of saying we're going to roll it out over like four years, five years, six years. So they're still feeling pretty good about that, even if they've had to reduce those totals a little bit. And then I think because they you know are continuing to expand healthcare insurance for all Californians, and they didn't have to cut safety net programs. They feel like they're keeping, they're maintaining those investments. My bet is he would probably say also that they didn't touch the reserves, right? So the state has over $30 billion in reserves, which are now sitting there in case, and untouched, in case there is a future deficit that they can't resolve with some of these other mechanisms. So, you know, I think they feel like they've set themselves up to manage through a shortfall in a much different way than like when we entered the Great Recession back in 2007, 2008, for folks who remember that period of time. So that's something I was wondering about. Uh, Governor Brown made a big deal about putting away this rainy day fund. And I know that there have been uh, legislators who really wanted to dip into that more than we have. Uh, so you're saying that the rainy day fund is pretty much untouched at the moment. And did that play a role in the decision making, uh, knowing that it was there or we're knowing that we had that much money. How did that impact sort of the decisions on this or did it? You know, actually, I don't think it had much impact. I think the governor and legislative leaders were on the same page from the get-go this year about this, that like they would did not want to touch the reserves and they wanted to leave them in place because they were afraid that what was happening with the economy, inflation, some of the unknowns could lead to a multi-year budget shortfall and that they might need need the reserves later, and so they didn't want to, you know, aim and fire in that arena first to leave themselves some tools to work with in the future. So, you know, the governor didn't in January didn't include drawing down reserves. Legislature never pushed hard 
back about it. The governor's proposal in May didn't include it. And they're all celebrating that they've left the reserves untouched today in the enacted agreement. You know, um, Chris, I referenced earlier the transition from Anthony Rendon to, to Revis. And, you know, you have to question what, I mean, it's been a, uh, and I think the word Tim used quoting our, 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 our former colleague, John Howard, it, the whole situation has just been so weird. It's been an odd thing, the way it's all been handled. There's lots of acrimony within the Democratic caucus. And even though they have a supermajority, there definitely has been some hurt feelings and some bad blood. Uh, to what extent, we really don't know. I think they've actually done a pretty good job of keeping most of that under wraps. Um, but, you know, it's clearly uh, had an impact to some extent. How much of an impact? Do you have a sense of what this whole situation, how it impacted all of these negotiations? Or is that a big nothing burger? You know, I I really can't say with any definitive, you know, information. I can speculate just as an outside observer. Um, you know, and, and I think part of the reason is we don't know all the machinations behind the scenes and, you know, where the acrimony or the differences might lie. But from like a budget process perspective and watching the two houses move somewhat differently during this budget cycle, it does seem like it may have affected the assembly's ability to move as a caucus together uh, to advance a set of priorities. So, you know, the Senate, for instance, very aggressively worked together, issued their own version of the budget or a budget plan back in late April before the governor's May revision, which is something they rarely do, and basically said, hey, we here's our budget deal. Here's our budget plan that we want. It's different than the governor's. It actually would put more money in reserves. They would have actually raised taxes on the highest earning corporations and given small businesses a tax cut. And then they make a whole, they would have used that revenue to make a whole series of investments. So they came up with like kind of an ambitious, we don't have to just totally deficit budget. We can actually still make investments right now. You know, the assembly like didn't really even respond, didn't have a plan. The governor rejected the idea out of hand immediately. You know, and I think what they did is they sort of found some common ground between the Senate and the assembly on some of the spending side stuff. But the assembly didn't really seem to have its own ability to kind of come up with its own master budget plan in advance of the May revise the way the Senate did. And that, they don't always do that. It's not that may not be different than any given year. But in a year where like the Senate was organizing itself, it felt like the assembly perhaps wasn't doing that in the same way. So what do what should we expect going forward? We've noted there's a lot of trailer bills. What are some of the biggest unresolved issues right now that we should expect to see some action on, uh, you know, in the near future? And are any of those going to get really, do you expect to see get kicked down, you know, the, the can get kicked down the road to, to, to the late end of session rush that we see every year? You know, I think that one of the key ones is um, there's, they they do have trailer bill language that says they're going to reform reimbursement rates for child care providers. So, if, you know, there, we, there are child care providers who provide child care through the state subsidized child care system. So if you're low income, you can access and get some low cost child care. Um, but those providers are, are paid the lowest rates for their work in the country. 
And that's a real problem in a high cost of living state. And it's a real problem coming out of a pandemic where many, you know, child care, daycare centers, et cetera, had to close or reduce their operations for a while. And so there's a, been an effort over multiple years to try to get some rate reform so that those folks are being paid more of a living wage. Um, they did include trailer bill language that says there's going to be some kind of rate reform for those providers, but it's not all defined or determined yet. And part of what's happening is a couple of years ago, the, the state allowed child care workers to unionize. And so there's now a child care union. And, then, and so there's a collective bargaining process that's happening in parallel with the budget. And so that what that trailer bill rate reform language looks like is going to be largely affected or determined by that collective bargaining agreement. And so that's one thing that we're going to, you know, who knows where they end up, right? Do they negotiate to the middle on it? Or is, you know, do this, does the union win on a lot of what it wants? Um, that's the, that's something we'll be watching for. You mentioned earlier the some of the governor, governor's sort of efforts to kind of streamline or fast track the CEQA or California Environmental Quality Act uh, roles in order to move some of these like climate change and infrastructure investments. I think some of that's still very undetermined about whether that will go forward. Um, you know, it's been one of those like worst kept secrets in Sacramento for a long time that pretty much everybody knows that CEQA is not being used solely for protecting environmental standards. Uh, it's being used for a lot of other political purposes. Um, and so, you know, it's on one on the one hand, it's kind of admirable that the governor is trying to make some reforms for things like climate change and infrastructure, the same kind of reforms that we've actually done for things like stadiums, which make far less sense. Um, and on the other hand, it's also understandable that a lot of folks are pushing back and sort of saying, hey, these are complex issues. You can't just ramrod this through in a few weeks between May and June. So, you know, I think I believe you're quoting the Senate Budget Committee right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's like they're just feeling like it got pushed through too fast and they didn't get a chance to deliberate. But it's not all dead. So now they've got a few weeks or a couple months here where they could still deliberate on that and maybe make some progress. And have you seen uh, or do you have any sense of what it might mean that the budget sort of revives? I believe it's the Industrial Relations Board. And there's been some discussion that maybe this will be used to influence relations with fast food companies right right now there's been you know there's been sort of this ongoing thing about regulating fast food industry and I have not been able to read these stories or I've not seen a story that examines this in any depth but mm -hmm. do you have any sense of what what might be going on there you know I the only sense I have is what I'm reading in various stories too I mean it was certainly I was surprised when I was watching the hearings, the budget hearings that were happening this week before the enacted deal done, done that, 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 that this really small amount of money, right? $3 million to revive uh, this, this board that's been, you know, nascent for a long time was the major area of contention, particularly between Republicans and Democrats in the legislature. Um, and it was clearly coming from the business community's concern about this board being funded once again, it does look it does look like the re, you know the the part of the reasoning might be I mean who knows I don't know exactly where where you know where the intent comes from by those who put this in the budget but it does look like this might be a reaction where basically the state can say hey look we enacted policy already that says that we can have a you know a, a commission to look at 
wage and labor standards in the fast food industry, but you, the industry, are circumventing us and trying to block us through a ballot measure. And where state leaders are sort of saying, well, look, that's not how the process is supposed to work. You don't get to just use your money, you know, and the ballot measure process to to undermine, you know, what we think is good policy. So we're going to open up some options for ourselves that maybe be a revived board. We could do some of the same thing we d- we had planned to do through the prior, you know, enacted policy. But I don't, that's what the speculation has been in, the, in some of the media reports. I don't know if that's really the intent that the folks who added the three million dollars had in mind, but it's certainly what the speculation has been. I do have one last question. It's sort of a big picture question. So you study the budget. You've been doing this for years. How does the California budget compare to the budget of other states? We're we're the 900-pound gorilla, am I right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, you know, I mean, you could, I can't remember the exact number, but you can add up all, you know, the budgets of a large number of states in the country and it doesn't come to the size and scale of the California budget. I mean, the general fund of the state budget is $209 billion, um, you know, and we're by far and away, I mean, we've heard this all heard fourth largest economy in the world. You know, we're clearly the largest separate from the federal government. We're the largest other public budget in the country by a long ways. Um, so, you know, it's, we're a we're a nation state in some respects from a budget perspective. Um, we also spend more per capita than a lot of other states because we try to do more. You know, we have more robust safety net programs that we've added on to the federal safety net structures in order to try to do more for do for more people. Um, we 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 tend to invest more in infrastructure. Um, and we're doing more in climate change than a lot of other states. So, you know, we tend to spend more, too. Um, we have a progressive revenue structure, the most progressive structure in the country for the most part. So that's also different, which means essentially we ask our wealthiest folks to actually pay more um, in, in income taxes than than in other states. So a number of ways that we're different. And I think I'm not sure if this is still the case, but I know at one point I think the uh, the highest earners pay basically half the taxes right off the top. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's about half of the tax revenue comes from a very small percentage of high earners. And that's because of this very progressive income tax structure. You know, so our, our the wealthiest or highest earning people in the state are paying a personal income tax rate of 13.3% on, you know, the, the 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 upper end of their income, not on all of it. It's a marginal system. So it goes up with your at income levels. But um and that's you know, and that's considerably more than, say, somebody who's who's very low income is paying, which, you know, is going to be five or six points lower than that in terms of the share of their income. Um, so it's just, you know, it's just the way it works, right? Like you we're a state that generates a ton of wealth and economic activity. And we ask the people who generate that wealth and ec- economic activity to contribute more, which then allows the state to try and do more, like with things like safety net programs where we can then redistribute that money to help the folks who are most struggling to, you know, make make ends meet in a high cost of living state. Right. The concept being that the the person who can afford the, uh, you know, the car elevator in their you know nine car garage <laughs> can probably pay more than the person that's parking on the street. Right. Yeah, that's right. So, or the person who needs to take the bus. So. <laughs> Which maybe we'll still have with this uh, with this transit right. infrastructure funding. Right. 
Well, I think uh, it's probably time for us to consider moving on to our favorite uh, sector of the week. Who had the worst week in California politics? The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. I think we just talked about several of them. But uh, I don't know. Are you, Chris, are you up for sticking around for this for a little bit? Sure, I'll, I'll stick around. Well, I, I'll throw my my top one, and, and there's many. I know Tim has one. This I'll, I'll offer one. Chris, I'm sure you'll have something, too. But for me, it's the, it's the cities that were uh, hoping to retain some of this homelessness funding. Um, I love there was a, a great quote from uh, Carolyn Coleman, who's the head of the uh, executive director of the um, League of California Cities. And she said it was a logic, a, a budget that defies logic because of the, the scale of the homeless, homelessness problem. And, uh, you know, having, as you noted, them only getting about a third of the funding that they thought they were going to get and really having it only be one time. Um, there's some pretty unhappy local officials right now when it comes to that. That'd be my vote. Yeah, I I think that is not a they're not having a good week for sure. Although, you know, one thing that's interesting, we've talked about this on the podcast before, that at a certain level, the homeless crisis is not going to be solved by just throwing money at it. We've thrown a lot of money at it, but it is the idea of the rights of folks on the street to make their own decisions about their lives, which, you know, many people are not really capable of making, but legally because of the Lanterman Petra short act, uh, they have, they have the authority to make those decisions. And so, you know, I wonder if the care courts ultimately will, will play more of a role in that, even though it may not be as expensive as, you know, putting more money in there. So one other entity we haven't even talked about, I mean, certainly, the disability rights supporters groups could not have been happy to see Susan Eggman and Roger Nilo's bill on reforming the definition of grave disability in the Lanterman Petra Short Act that cleared the Assembly Health Committee yesterday. It sure seems like for the first time in the 50 some odd years of Lanterman Petra Short, we're going to, a bill has a very good chance of getting to the governor. So I think they are not they can't be thrilled today either. Yeah. And I would say my takeaway, the quick read of this is that the agribusiness and and basically the folks in the lower half of the state are probably not going to be thrilled that the Delta Tunnel has now been cut from two Delta Tunnels under the Brown administration to one Delta Tunnel, and now it's been put off again. And so uh, if you're an agribusiness and you were counting on that water anytime soon, uh, you're probably not happy. So, Chris, who do you, who is who's your take? You're you're watching all this. Maybe it won't even be somebody related to the budget. Well, you know, I was I think I was compelled by Rich's uh, take on uh, the the folks at the city level and the homelessness funding. Um, but I would note that you know, as you noted earlier, Tim, we we are in a leadership transition with the state assembly, and Anthony Rendon's going to be handing over the gavel to. Robert Rivas at the end of the week. Um, and, you know, um, I'm hearing through folks who've heard who are attending a luncheon right now where the speaker is talking about his tenure and noted that uh, he put up with a lot of crap over that course of time uh, and he could have punished people more. 
So it sounds like he's not having a great week or he's feeling underappreciated in some regard. That's a, you know, that's more of a political who's having a bad week than a policy, but having a bad week, uh, I had to go with the policy side. I'd probably go with one of your two choices. Yeah. The whole thing with, with uh, the speaker, you know, um, that had, anytime you have a coup essentially run against you, it really seemed odd because I don't think any of us have been hearing about any fissures in the caucus, right? It seemed, it really seemed to come out of left field. And as you know, as Tim noted earlier, I mean, the whole thing was weird and the whole thing was done uh, in such an odd way. And then at one point, Reva said he had the votes and, you know, could go forward. And then they didn't have the vote. And then it turned into a compromise. And, you know, it's just, I think this whole thing has given everybody lots of time to stew on all of the aspects of this that they don't like, whether it's the impatience of waiting for this to happen or the aggravation that it happened at all and someone losing their job and someone, uh, you know, wishing that this could have all been done earlier or what have you. I, I think that's definitely from the political um, intrigue side of it all, there's probably not not just Rendon. I think there's probably a lot of folks in, on that in his camp. I hate that term, but folks that are his allies probably are all feeling a little melancholy about things right now. I'll be very curious to hear his oral history in about 25 years when he talks about all of this. So he seems like a really interesting guy. Yeah, yeah I, you know what? I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna read you the exact quote as it's been put out there by by major media here. He said to a, when asked what his greatest regret was or mistake, he said to a large extent, I always wanted to be forgiving and give people opportunities for redemption. I don't always know that I was as quick to punish as I should have. <laughs> so you know there are some people that that he that that's aimed at. We don't know exactly who that's aimed at. We could probably make some pretty good guesses, but they all know who they are and everyone around them knows who they are. So I can't imagine that's going to ease the tensions between now and, you know, November or whenever. I think it's 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 going to be a little frosty in some of those caucus room uh, meetings for a while. Yeah, and it's sort of interesting to think about the fact that it's been going on for like 10 months or 11 months now, like, you know, the first inklings of this that started to get out into the media were, you know, late last summer, as I recall, anyway, maybe even earlier for all I know, but um, last, I remember late last summer. Um, and, you know, and had the, had the transition happened back then, we would have had totally new leadership uh, as we transitioned from a surplus budget to a deficit budget. So it's kind of interesting to think about like, what everyone was competing for at that time. Also, the picture, the, the sort of landscape changed pretty dramatically. I mean, we probably, who knows whether we have deficit years looking forward or we, you know, the economy turns around and the revenues are booming again. But um, it'll be interesting to see what the leadership transition means for the next budget cycle. Absolutely. Chris, thanks so much for coming on uh, the podcast today and talking about all this. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff. The California budget is always a mix of intrigue and a drama <laughs> and all kinds of things along those lines. And so this year has not disappointed. There's been no shortage of drama this year. That's for sure. No. And you're talking to a budget wonk. So I think it's dramatic and, you know, interesting every year. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, you know, hey, it is a, it is a document that reflects our, our priorities as a state. So there you go. It's a, a very, very 
uh, dramatic thing regardless, right? All right. Thanks, Chris, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yep. Thanks, guys. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.